Welcome to For the Love of Brantford, a podcast about the evolving story of our community. This podcast is for everyone who holds a place in their heart for our beautiful city. I'm Nathan Etherington, the Program and Community Coordinator for the Brant Historical Society. I'll be sharing some information from the Brant Historical Society archives and other sources to share some history that you may not have learned in school. And I'm Andy Samwell, president of the Eagle Place Community Association, and I'm passionate about community. And for me, you'll hear about what's happening in our community now. And I'm Zila Ozels from the Brantford Public Library. I'll be speaking with experts to get an idea of where our community is going. If you have any questions or comments that you would like to share with us, fill in our feedback form on the podcast website at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB. We hope you join us each episode as we learn from each other and explore Brantford's past, present, and future. Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of For the Love of Brantford, where we explore the evolving story of our community. In this episode, we discuss the Mohawk Institute, truth and reconciliation, and being an ally to Indigenous peoples in your area. While we take a broader look at what it means to be an ally, I'll start by sharing the history of how Six Nations came to the Grand River area and some early education on Six Nations, as well as a little bit about the Mohawk Institute. For the present and future segments, both myself and Zila speak with Michelle Thomas, a Seneca Bear Clan woman from Six Nations of the Grand River, about the responsibilities of being an ally. We'll share her full bio during the interview. Rather than having two separate interviews as we normally do, we did the interview together so that we could handle this important discussion as a team and ask questions that we both had on mind as settlers in Canada. Additionally, as we learned more about truth and reconciliation, it comes up that this is not a short process. It was many, many years and many events that brought us to now. And so it will be many more years to repair the relationships. Mandy and I wanted to focus on the steps for individuals to start on a path of allyship, understanding that the relationships won't be healed in our lifetime and we will not see all the required changes. With all that in mind, we carefully consider what to include in this episode given the significance of this topic and the limits of the podcast and our own knowledge and experiences. This year is the second year that September 30th has been a federal statutory holiday to observe the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. For years before, September 30th was recognized as Orange Shirt Day, a day to honor survivors and victims of residential schools that began with Phyllis Jack Webstad sharing her story about her first day at a residential school. National Day for Truth and Reconciliation specifically is in response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's call to action number 80. Action number 80 calls upon the federal government in collaboration with Indigenous peoples, quote, to establish a statutory holiday, a national day for truth and reconciliation to honor survivors, their families and communities, and ensure that public commemoration of the history and legacy of residential schools remains a vital component of the reconciliation process. A large part of commemoration is really learning about what really happened in residential schools and how Indigenous communities are still impacted today because of them, whether they attended or not. 
As Michelle Thomas shared with us, there's so much to learn. It's a lifelong job to continually build on and share with others who might not yet know so that we can continue learning and rebuilding together. We hope that what people will learn from this episode is just the beginning. For the past segment, we were by no means exhaustive in the content, but we provided some information and resources for you to explore after listening. Okay, we hear about Six Nations of the Grand River all the time being in Brantford, but can you set the stage for us about how this area became their home? Well, the history of Brant County by Warner and Beers was written in 1883, and about 60 pages of this book is about the Indigenous history in the area. Before contact, Six Nations peoples were living in the United States in the Mohawk Valley or the Hudson River Valley near the borders with Quebec, Ontario, and Vermont. Joseph Brandt was made Principal War Chief in the early 1770s, who befriended Sir William Johnson and his nephew, Colonel Guy Johnson. Warner and Beers mentions when Guy Johnson evacuated the Mohawk Valley and moved westwardly to Ontario, thence to Oswego, and later to Montreal, he was accompanied by Brandt, and a portion of Mohawk warriors. William Johnson seems to have done some things below his title of Sir, having relations and children with several white and indigenous women, including Molly Brandt, Joseph Brandt's sister. As war chief, Brandt was part of Butler's Rangers organized by John Butler, a loyalist of French and indigenous descent who abandoned 26,000 acres of land to flee to Canada. They had about 800 to 1,200 rangers who fought in various battles of the American Revolutionary War. As they were allied with the British, in compensation of their lands lost in New York State, they were given the Haldeman Treaty in 1784. How does the Haldeman Treaty match up with other developments in Ontario at the same time? In 1774, the Quebec Act defined the outlines of the French colonies of North America which included most of Quebec and Ontario. As a result of the Treaty of Paris in 1783, many loyalists to Britain left the newly independent United States to settle in Ontario. The Haldeman Treaty, quotes, permit the said Mohawk Nation and such others of the five nation Indians as wish to settle in that quarter to take possession of and settle upon the banks of the river commonly called Ouse, or Grand River, running into Lake Erie, allotting to them for that purpose six miles deep on each side of the river, beginning at Lake Erie and extending in that proportion to the head of the said river, which them and their prosperity are to enjoy forever. The government insisted that land could not be sold by six nations within the Haldeman Tract as British subjects could only receive land from other British. Brandt pushed back and said that, the, that Haldeman had confirmed that Indians should be given equal ability as loyalists with land tenure. So how did they attempt to resolve this? By 1790, the population had swelled in the province of Quebec, 
and the loyalists probably did not care much for French civil law. So they split the province of Quebec into Quebec and Ontario with a constitution established in 1791. With this new constitution, they needed to clarify the lands covered by the Haldeman Treaty. The government contended that it only referred to up to the falls at Alora as the northerly part. As the government was not in possession of the lands to the north, they could not cede them. A survey was set up and agreed to in 1791, but no known copy of this agreement exists. In 1821, they sent Thomas Rideout to make the first map, and this is what we commonly know as the Haldeman deed today. Okay, so going back to the last episode about education, how does traditional Western education begin on Six Nations? Well, the first school under full controls of the chiefs was known as the Thomas School. The Thomas family arrived from New York State with Joseph Brandt and constructed the Mohawk Chapel, for which they were given land on the north side of Coleman Street near Canesville. David Thomas was a lay preacher, and he conducted religious and funeral services there, singing and preaching in Mohawk. The New England Company was formed in 1649 solely to spread Christianity to the Indigenous peoples of North America and focus solely on Canada after the Revolutionary War. They built the first Mohawk Institute in 1831 as a day school with 10 boys for formal, domestic, and farming skills, which was expanded in 1840. By 1859, they found it necessary to construct a new school on the present site. In 1878, the school had an annual budget of $4,000, with $1,500 from the New England Company, $1,500 from Six Nations Council, and $1,000 from the federal government. This building was destroyed by a fire in 1903. I've heard about the fires at the school. What else happened in 1903? On May 8, 1903, Reports started coming in around midnight about a blaze breaking out in one of the barns. It ended up destroying three barns together with a granary, ice houses, hay pens, and 75 tons of hay valued at $8,000. Saved were a fourth barn, several small structures, the gymnasium, and the playhouse. Two employees of the Institute were on the Cockshot factory site and discovered the blaze around 11 o'clock and ran to the building to find the rear of the barn on fire with worry of it spreading to adjacent structures. It notes that no water was used on the burning buildings. It was thought impossible to save them. This was not the first fire reported within the last month. As the Expositor article mentions the starch works, the school building itself, John Alexander's barn, and now the Institute burns all catching fire. The Starchworks and other barns are not connected with the students at the school. So in regards to the Mohawk Institute and the barn on the premises, I heard it was the students from Mohawk Institute. Well, a month later at the end of June, the police unearthed sensational facts in connection with the fire and the expositor reports that they were all of incendiary origins and have been traced to the pupils of the Institute. The Expositor article also mentions this morning, four boys, Roy Wilson, Jesse Debo, Isaiah Antoine, 
and Alexander Miracle appeared before Magistrate Woodyard, and each one admitted taking some part in setting fire to the buildings. Roy Wilson was only 12 years old, and he confessed to having struck the match, which was caused the burning of the Institute in April and the Playhouse last night. About 8.30, he collected a pair of old socks and poured coal oil in lanterns. He stated that Debo and Antoine assisted him and afterwards lifted him up through a trap door in the ceiling where he placed the combustibles and ignited them. Wilson blames the burning of the barns on Frank Winnie. Miracle says the main purport was to shoulder the onus on Wilson. The reporter says, Wilson, the chief perpetrator, conducted himself like a hardened villain, and it would appear that a mischievous instinct is abnormally developed in him. This story made me reflect on the systems of oppression and how children who were minors were arrested, interviewed, charged, and convicted without speaking to their parents or lawyers. The Woodland Cultural Centre continues to tell these stories today and should provoke us into action. Michelle is a Seneca Bear Clan woman from Six Nations of the Grand River. She is a self-published author of a memoir entitled Beyond the Leaf's Thickness and a collection of poetry entitled Letting Yourself Be Free. She has been given many gifts to carry, including traditional healer, author, educator, spirit painter, Reiki master. Michelle is passionate about creating opportunities for people to decolonize their minds Michelle carries a diverse background of education, sociology, business and healing and wellness. Hi, Michelle. Welcome. Is there anything else you wanted to add to your introduction? No, uh, just to add that it's always very odd when you hear it being read back to you. (laughs) I always feel self-conscious for some reason, but thank you for that. Uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, I have the first question for you and we'll go back and forth with a few questions. Um, and really when we were kind of emailing back and forth, we had talked about doing a focus on the rights and responsibilities of allies when it comes to Indigenous peoples in Canada. Um, and so Thinking about that, when we kind of are talking about truth and reconciliation these days, I think most people think of those calls to action as recommendations for the government, um, but they are also applicable to individuals and small groups and organizations uh, rather than just the government of Canada. So from the perspective of individuals, if we want to be working on becoming allies to our Indigenous neighbors, like here in Brantford, Six Nations, or the Indigenous folk that live within the city um, and share this land properly? Like, what are our responsibilities in regards to, I guess, truth and reconciliation, but maybe also wider? First and foremost is education. Um, Education is huge in terms of allowing yourself to connect with uh, someone that can give you the those authentic stories and histories and and that indigenous knowledge that are as representative of the territory that you're living closest to 
that would almost be like 95% of my answer to that question. And, and it would take up 95% of your time mm-hmm. because there's no, I mean, even myself as an Indigenous woman, I'm still learning about my own Indigenous knowledge and I'm continually putting myself, I guess, as a student and always trying to learn as much as I can and, and very mindful that um, we have a limited, we have a finite level of resources within our community because our elders and those first language speakers that we've had are dying at, at a very high rate. And so it's like we're losing these these precious gems that we have that would be able to give us all of those those pieces that we need to, to answer the puzzle. Um, so for allies, I would say the exact same thing, like reach out and find those authentic sources and find those people that can can give you that knowledge and give you that information on the history, the language, the community, the customs, you know, um, some of the stories, the oral tradition, you know, as much as you can get, um, try to soak that up as well as to learn about the, and that's more of like a local um, thing to do, like when you're looking for for local things to, to just enhance your knowledge. But beyond that, there's the education around the history itself like the whole colonization piece and the history of Canada and the role of Canada and uh, the Canada's role in genocide. And there's a mass of like, that could be an entire university level course, you know? So there's so much that goes into that, but some of the more, I guess, grass, grassroots things that you can do is just reach out and, and try to make those connections and, and try to get that education in there as much as you can. And, and don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to have those conversations that say, you know what, this is really awkward for me to admit, but I know nothing. Because in my experience, when I've had people, allies that have said that to me, they're the best allies ever because they just are so open and so honest and willing to be vulnerable that it takes a little bit of that, you know, vulnerability to um, go that extra mile to be able to take the information in and process it in a way that's going to be transformative. I have a few questions in follow-up to that, actually, because when you talk about the education and learning piece, one of the first things that comes to my mind, and I'm speaking as a white settler in on this land, and one of the reasons that comes to my mind is um, what you talked about, like the busyness of a lot of indigenous folk and the finite resources. So then mm-hmm. in wanting to ask about, you know, talking about like the language and history and customs, I don't want to take up more time and space um, than maybe someone who is indigenous, who could better use those resources because they, like you said, you're learning yourself still every day. Um, and so How do you, or how can an ally balance something like that or think about that? I, I, my answer to that would be to do the bigger pieces first, Uh, like to learn about the history, to learn about colonization, Mm -hmm. to learn those great big pieces first. Because in my experience, having worked with allies for the past five years or so, that journey, uh, those steps are often what take you to the second stage, which is being able 
comfortable and confident enough to be able to do those pieces where you can reach out locally and make those connections and build meaningful relationships. But a lot of times folks have to go through those um, hard steps of learning about colonization, learning about the history and learning how they feel about that. Especially if you, you've had um, religion which has been a big part of your life. I've had a lot of people in the past who have been struggled with that you know, where they, they really, that was a meaningful part of their life. And then they come to learn this history and they learn the role of the church and all these different things. And they've had to really process that and take the information in and have it make sense to them and have it make meaning to them in their world of how they want to reconcile that on a personal level. Right. And so you can't kind of go to third base without starting at the bat and going through one and two. So those bigger pieces, that may take you a long time, years even. But if you go through it slowly and methodically, by the time you get to third base, you're just going to be, it's going to be so amazing because you won't be wasting time from those resource people because they won't have to waste their time schooling you on base one and two. You know what I mean? Like you'll be able to just have all that knowledge and get right in there and have deep, meaningful, authentic conversations where, where you can really see one another and engage with each other in a, in a meaningful way. And um, that's a good way to, to, I guess, put those resources to the best use so that it's efficient for, for everyone. Kind of like do your homework first. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. Because there's nothing, uh, I guess that's harder uh, when we have folks that don't understand it's a process because they want to go to, they want to go all the way around all the plates. I don't know why I'm stuck in this baseball. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm stuck in that, but people there go to their first lecture and they want the answers then and there you know, how do I solve this? What do I do? And they really don't understand the history piece and how very critical that is to know all of that first before you really start to, to ask some of those bigger questions, right? And so I, that's why I always go back to education because that can take a long time and to not be um, impatient with it because let's face it, we didn't get in this boat overnight. You know, this is over 500 years of life that it took for us and many generations for us to get here. So undoing it is likely not going to happen in our generation either. But we can play a really positive impact in the ones that are coming after us so that they don't have they, they're going to have a better time at it than than maybe we are. Right. So learning and education is 95 percent. Yeah, I, uh, I had a comment too. I was just going to say um, that I really appreciate how you mentioned not being afraid to ask questions, because I think that a lot of people feel that way and are, are uncertain about asking or saying the wrong things. So I really just wanted to say that I appreciate that you mentioned that. Um, and that way everybody can feel comfortable. So 94 calls to action can seem overwhelming for some. And we often hear that unlearning and learning about the First Nations and colonization is something we can start with. What can individuals do with that learning 
or that first and second steps individuals can start with? Uh, I would say once you start your that big step of educating yourself, uh, talk to other people. Mm-hmm. Talk to other people that you know uh, would be open, uh, whether it's your friends, your family, your community group, but don't hold on to that information. It's too critical. Like that's how we... That's how we make change is by talking and by sharing, right? And and it can be I've and I've heard this from other allies themselves that are learning of how it can be a lonely road because sometimes they start sharing with their friends, their family, whoever, about what they're learning and, and just educating people, you know, on on facts that maybe were misrepresented or ignored altogether right on these really complex issues and uh they're shunned you know or they're they're completely meet all this resistance or you know shut out of conversations or whatever right and so that's the thing is finding like-minded people and if that happens not throwing in the towel and recognizing that there's a lot of people in this world and it's not up to us to to change anybody but it's really just up to us to find like-minded people and then have them make up their own mind but there's power in numbers and so certainly start having those discussions and start making waves (laughs) out there right because that's the only way we're going to make change is by being brave and, and that has to happen with all allies, right? And uh, whether they choose to take that on or to what they choose to do with that information is up to them. But that's, I think that definitely is one of what I would say a big key responsibility as an ally is to share what you know, right? I can say that talking to others, um, when I learn something and I start talking to people and I find some like-minded people that I'm able to talk with, And then one of the biggest responses I usually get is that a combination of disbelief or like, no, that that's not how it works or whatever. And then I have to question, I'm like, oh, wait, did I read that right? And if anything, I go back and reread or relearn and just further ingrain that knowledge rather than, but it's like (laughs) going back and forth between the doubt and understanding and yeah, just relearning again. It's helpful to, this is going to kind of sound funny, but adopt a buddy. Like if you can befriend (laughs) a really cool, fun, indigenous person who's really open-minded and and willing to just be somebody that you can say, hey, can I ask you all those questions that I think that are stupid and you won't judge me? (laughs) Like, you know, adopt a buddy so that when you have those moments like that, you can just call them up or text them and say, hey, this happened. What should, what do you think? Or what should I do? You know what I mean? So that it's not always so um, heavy, right? Because we should be able to just be human and be ourselves and talk to one another about things, right? It doesn't always have to be such a heavy context. Like talking about colonization is, is pretty drab conversation, you know? So, you know, just reach out and make those friendships that can be fun. And, you know, because 
someone that is very liberal and open-minded and used to doing allyship work, we got good sense of humor, you know, we have to. So, you know, don't be afraid to, to make those kind of connections too, right? I'm also curious, because um, in your bio, you talk about creating those opportunities for people to decolonize their minds. And I mean, to me, I think a big part of that is having those conversations with multiple people and sharing that information and knowledge. Um, and I was just curious, kind of, what does that mean for you, like decolonizing minds? Decolonizing minds, to me, uh, it doesn't really even matter if you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous, because we also, as Indigenous folks, we need to understand part of, see, our decolonization is different because ours is more about unlearning the intergenerational trauma. You know, that's what decolonization is for us, you know, in 2022, what do we want our lives as Indigenous folks to, to look like? And what, what did it look like prior to colonization? And what, it, what are some of those true and authentic values? And, and how do we want to embrace that moving forward? So that there's a lot of healing and, I guess, unlearning that intergenerational trauma, that some of the things that we inherited aren't necessarily the truth of those Indigenous values that we want to be living and moving forward and how do we embrace that truth and and so there's a lot of inner work that we need to do with that uh so that's a big part for an indigenous person's experience uh for an ally's experience um and i'm only speaking on what i've seen in my facilitation and what's been shared with me from allies i'm not speaking from that voice i'm speaking from their experiences that were shared with me is really about that whole process of finding out where they fit in after under after facing some of those uncomfortable truths processing it and figuring out what am i going to do with that information now you know now that i have the education now that i have the awareness what do i do with this and how does it make sense in my life and there's been some really amazing things I've seen happen. I always go back to this example of a young girl who was probably in her early 20s, a student I was teaching at Brock. And uh, she was quite religious and had, you know, really grown up with that. And she really had almost like an identity crisis when all of this information came forward about residential schools and how deeply involved she did a paper on residential schools. And so she learned how deep of a role the church played. And so she had a really, really hard time. And she spent a lot of time talking with me about that. And she had so much guilt and all these other emotions that came up about it. And so, but she didn't sit with it. She instead went to her, and I'm not even sure if it was a pastor or her minister, but someone in charge in her church community and said all of the same things, what she was talking with me about her inner experience and what is, she basically put it to the church to say, what are we going to do about it? You know, cause they weren't doing anything. They weren't really aware or acknowledging or weren't really active in that discussion. Right. 
And so she started to have that discussion with some of her elders there in the church and kind of amongst the congregation, they did some working groups and they ended up bringing in the blanket. I think it's called the blanket project that um, comes in and teaches about colonization history. So, and I believe that has its roots in ecumenical um, circuits as well. That's so it sort of came out of the church too. And so they brought that people from that organization to come in and talk about that and, and share that with her congregation. And I always thought that was such a great example because she was young and she really used that information and kind of got fired up about it and said, you know, nope, this is not good. You know, we need to do something. We need to take action. But she just took it those to those people in, in authority so that basically she made them walk their talk. And I thought, good for you, you know? So that's a really good example of what can be done, right? One of the things that I think I wanted listeners to learn more about is language uh, and like the words that we use. Because for me specifically, words help me frame things or reframe things. So some of the words that I've come across, like as I'm learning and trying to like actively be an anti-racist um, is uh, like using words such as like settlers and guests, or even saying like Turtle Island instead of, I guess, Canada or North America. And so I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on like the importance of language uh, when it comes to truth and reconciliation, um, or maybe how it isn't important? I always think that it's important to get a context. So being here in Brantford and Brant County, we should be using the language that the that Six Nations uses, right? So it should that language should always go to your host community that's hosting you, that's closest, that's Indigenous, right? So if you were in Ottawa, you would be, you know, using Anishinaabe language. Kitagunzibi, I believe, is closest reserved to Ottawa. So you would be consulting with somebody from that community, not, you know, anyone anywhere else, because it's not relevant to anyone except the people that you're close, your your host community, which is your most local uh, Indigenous community. That's the language you should be using. And that's just giving respect to those folks who's most connected to the land in that area. <clears throat> I try to kind of talk about that a little bit when I um, go through my thoughts. I've had a lot of people ask about land acknowledgements and whether or not what that's all about and what my thoughts are on that. And I always try to say, well, and land acknowledgements are really about having a context to the land, right? And so the best context is always the Indigenous folks that, that are closest to that land because our stories and our history and everything about that, that land is embedded right in it, right? And so we have that more of a natural connection there because the history is there, you know, going back. And the oral traditions and the stories and every the fabric of who we are is in that land. And so going back to the original question, if you want to talk about language, then you should be using 
giving the respect to that host community. So you should be referring to Indigenous folks, because if, especially if you're addressing just a local community in Brantford, you should be saying Haudenosaunee, right? Because you're on Haudenosaunee territory, so you should be saying Haudenosaunee. If you were, like I said, if you were in Anishinaabe territory, you would be saying Anishinaabe territory, or you, should, you would be referring to folks as that. But it gets into a little bit of a gray area because there are many, many, many different nations that might reside in Brantford. Mm-hmm. You know, there might be Denny folks, there might be Inuit folks, there might be Cree, there might be other folks that are, are Indigenous, but they're not the host from this host community. But still just even having that connection and acknowledging that whatever that original host community is, acknowledging them in their language of how they're referred to that's ultimately the respect, the level of respect that you want to be working at. I think earlier in this conversation, I had said something about the Indigenous folks in the Brantford communities. Could I have said, or what a different way of saying it, maybe like the Haudenosaunee and other Indigenous folks, or like, is there a better way of saying and being yeah, inclusive of all that? Thing, right? It's It's hard to... And even myself, I'm always mindful of, like, say if I got, was asked to go and speak in Kitchener, for example, Kitchener has a huge multi, you know, there's so many different nations represented in Kitchener and their indigenous population is over 10,000. And um, so it's almost like its own little urban reserve within the city of Kitchener, right? I'm mindful that even though that's still considered put in a Shoni territory because it's along the Grand, I'm also mindful that that's not always going to be respectful way of doing it either, right? Because we have to think about that, that representation and inclusion, like you said. So I, I don't really have an answer to that. I'm kind of trying to work, work, figure that one out for myself because we're not static people anymore like we used to be historically, right? Um, where we stayed or migrated within only a specific area. So I don't know, just respect, I think, comes down to the bottom line of it. You, you can say, put in the Shoni people and, and other nations that may be represented or that may be reside in this area, something along those lines. That's a good way to put it. Uh, either way, it's something, something to think about. And what you said about, you know, yeah. we're a static... Uh, not static, sorry, <laughs> dynamic, you know, people are moving a lot more and it's, yeah, it's the dynamics of everyone just moving around, you know, they study in one city and then go work in another place or go home for the holidays, you know, whatever people are always moving. And I think that, sorry, it just makes me think of another kind of question. I feel like, and I don't know if you want to talk about this or anything so feel free we can just not answer the question Um, but I'm just curious because I know there's all kinds of people who say like you know what you know we're like we're moving into the future we need to move forward we need to move on why do we need to like worry about what was traditional and what used to be here and and that kind of thing like are there points that can be made to, to tell them that it is important to look at 
what was here, what is still here? I, my answer to that would be that we can't, we can't prevent things for, that have already happened in the past. We can't change that. But we can, if we don't learn from it, the really big fear that I have is that it's going to just be repeated again. If you don't learn from those mistakes of history, then we run that risk of seeing it being repeated. And that kind of goes back to that responsibility of, you know, we might not make those changes and see those changes in our generation, but I'll be darned if I want my nieces or my nephews or, or anyone that's coming behind me, if I want them to live with what I've lived with. That's not good enough. Right. So like that change has to come from within and it's our job to, cause we're all human beings. I don't care where we come from or what our background is. We all have a history and Canada has a collective history. And if we don't look at that and say what was good, what was awful, what do we want to um, take with us and what do we want to leave behind? What do we want to learn from? then it's just going to keep happening over and over again. And there's some things in that history, that collective history of Canada that should never happen again. If we don't talk about that and aren't vocal about that and don't understand that, you know, it's our responsibility to pick that up, then what's going to happen for the next generation? Are they just going to be completely oblivious to that and care even less we don't want to see those things happen ever again. So that's that's why it's important. Thank you for that. Mandy, do you have anything else you would like to add? That was a really good way of ex- answering and explaining why it's important um, to look back and to, to remember the history and to learn from it. Um, so to answer your question, I think that Michelle's answer was really good. And I'll take that away from today. Is there anything else that you would like to add, Michelle? I guess I would just like to add some encouragement that, like I say, allyship work, you have to be brave to do it. And you have to have, there's a teaching in in our Haudenosaunee ways that people need to have seven layers of, of skin, a seven layer thickness of skin. If you are one of our chiefs, our traditional chiefs, that they're, and that's, kind of is talking about meant to be like basically to develop those thick layer of skin so that you can be a leader that will be able to walk through anything and not take things personally and to kind of slough things off and I think allyship you know there's a lot of talk right now about white fragility and things like that and I, I somebody was just mentioning to me a book called that the other day but I would encourage um, rather than focusing on that, focus on developing seven layers of skin. You know, as you walk forward, that you can carry the truth in a good way and, and continue to search out like-minded people and continue to develop your own circle um, that you can talk to, that you can spread this information and share and, and just keep branching out. So it makes it easier to continue when you do that because allyship is a lifelong job. It's not easy, but neither is being Indigenous. And we need each other to get through it, right? We really do. So 
best of luck to all of humanity. <laughs> right? Because we're in this boat together and we got here together and we're going to find our own path together. We can't do it by ourselves. Those are great words of encouragement. Thank you. <laughs> I think I'll definitely keep in mind that seven layers of skin. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. It's so true. It's helpful. Before we leave, Michelle, can you share how people can reach you uh, if they would like to? Sure. I have a website. It's michellethomas.ca, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-T-H-O-M-A-S.ca. <clears throat> so you can reach me there. And I have um, an email there as well. And as mentioned before, I'm a self-published author. So there's a, a chance for you to uh, subscribe and you can uh, samples of my poetry and uh, purchase my book on there as well. Uh, so you can connect with me that way. My email is just michelle at michellethomas.ca. And I'm also on social media too, my Facebook and um, yeah, Instagram, sorry. I'm not very active on my social media. I'm like, what's the other thing that I'm on? I mean, it sounds like you're busy enough, honestly. <laughs> and if anybody's interested in gaining more education and doing cultural safety education and awareness, I do lots of um, workshops. I can do, I my background is in healing and wellness too. So sometimes I can come and do uh, sessions for folks and, and um, they hire me to do you know, workshop in the morning and then maybe sessions in the afternoon. There's lots of things that I can chat with people about if they're interested. Great. Good. Thank you for sharing. Okay. Well, thanks, thanks for joining us today, Michelle. We really enjoyed having you here and we'll include your website in the show notes. What I was most glad to hear when we were speaking to Michelle was that how she said that it's okay to like ask questions and not be afraid. And because I think so many people are worried about saying the wrong thing or asking the wrong question and making, making people uncomfortable. And so I just really appreciated that. She said, just ask the questions, find somebody that, you know, and trust that you're comfortable talking with and ask the questions. Yeah. I think that's really important because sometimes you don't know, don't know how to start that conversation. If you're coming at it from an honest position, then then people are generally going to take, you know, some level of respect for that because you're coming to it from an honest position, right? Uh, you're not coming to it from a position of ignorance. And the thing that uh, I guess stuck out for me a little bit was, you know, uh, you can always kind of like learn something. Um, she talks about education all the time, right? And education is a vital piece of it because if you don't learn then uh then you can't can't speak about it with any kind of uh authority right and so you kind of need to take some ownership over learning that history so that you can be a true and proper ally something i took away too from her was um, in regards to what you were saying about like learning and stuff like that she also made like she made sure to make it clear that once you learn these things and know more about it, that you should be sharing at it, sharing it and speaking out. And I think that's another piece that doesn't always happen. I know that myself, I want to learn more and do better at being an ally. Yeah, that ownership piece that you kind of spoke to um, and the responsibility, I think, is kind of key. Like really 
with knowledge. You have a responsibility to do something with it, especially if it's something um, as harmful and atrocious as what we're all learning. I mean, you can't just sit with that and do nothing, even if it's to share that information (laughs) at your next family gathering, maybe with a person who's there, who's also interested in learning more, but don't know where to start. I think every time that I've had a conversation with people from Six Nations, that it's always um, you're 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 asking questions because you're curious, and it always, it it feels a lot more like a a conversation. You're you're asking things, or you've heard some things from some people, and and that's a great way of correcting sometimes some misinformation that happens. Is uh, you know people. People uh, invent history all the time, I say. And uh, unless you can find something with a truth, authoritative source. And as well, you also have to be kind of worried sometimes about some colonial perspective or lenses that are kind of baked into those documents. You know, if it's coming from a, a white settler source, it's not necessarily going to have the 100% truth. It, it may be glossed over in some ways as well. That's a really good point because sometimes unless it's recorded and documented, people are like, well, that didn't happen. But you have to consider who did the recording, who documented it uh, and what their objectives were in doing that. So I think that's very important to consider the context behind the information we even do have in our history classes in public school and that kind of thing where that's the number one thing I hear often from people who are learning more about the residential schools is like, I can't believe I didn't learn this when I went, was in high school or whatever. And there's a specific reason why we didn't learn it in school. It's the necessary thing to learn. I think like to like, we talk about uh, using the library all the time as like a center of lifelong learning. Right. And, and part of, Part of this is is lifelong learning. You know, you if you're a lifelong learner, you you want to know more about these things because they they help inform you and inform your community. And especially in Brantford, like there are there are huge segments of the population in Brantford who are indigenous. So you know, it's not like they're just on the reserve. They're they're here in 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 our community, and they like. Uh, they make us aware that we're on their land all the time. I was just thinking about how important that the the learning that you can get from the Woodland Cultural Center is and about the Save the Evidence campaign that's going on um, and continues to the work that they continue to do and that it's so much more than just wearing an orange shirt. Yeah, I've reminded during the pandemic, they reminded, we're reminding people, you know, don't don't go to Walmart and pick up your orange shirt that that money doesn't go to support indigenous people right um you should be buying it from <laughs> the woodland cultural center and uh and then you know that it's uh the money is going towards its intended purpose you know it's not a commercial cultural appropriation of, of a trend right and and part of reconciliation too is being is finding uh reconciliation like uh ec- economically in terms of like money and supporting supporting first nations in that way and how we can 
you know, a lot of our wealth here is generated because the land that the wealth is generated from was originally part of six nations. And so how, how do we properly contribute back to six nations for letting us use their land and provide us wealth and benefit and can also help them and their people? It reminds me of what Michelle was saying about learning the language of uh, the Indigenous peoples that are in your that are in your area where you live and honoring the like the land and like the relationship by actually learning the language and recognizing that you know maybe the way that we name certain things isn't what it was like it had a name before settlers showed up and I think it also just brings back like to the forefront of people's minds like that (laughs) we are sharing we are sharing this land like we're not the only people here and what we want isn't what or what is viable for us isn't mean doesn't mean it's viable for everyone and we need to work together to ensure a viable future we're all in this together that's what your just speech just made me want to say just you know like I don't know well but essentially like (laughs) the point of truth and reconciliation is like the truth like learning yeah about everything that's happened and continues to like happen even really but then you know (laughs) you can't have reconciliation without multiple parties that's not just a one group effort you know if if no one's responding then there isn't reconciliation it's a two-way process a multi-way process that's it for episode two of our second season of for the love of brantford if you have any comments questions or suggestions Go to our website at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB to fill out our feedback form. Any and all suggestions are welcome. Thank you to Michelle Thomas for your honest conversation about allyship. Remember, you can learn more from Michelle or email her on her website, michellethomas.ca and find her on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening to this episode of For the Love of Brantford. You can find all the episodes at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB, including the show notes where we list references, share images, and provide resources to continue your exploration of Brantford. We are your hosts, Mandy Samuel, Nathan Atherington, and Zila Ozels. This is a podcast in partnership with the Eagle Place Community Association, the Brant Historical Society, and the Brantford Public Library.